Well, good morning, Mission Point, and a belated Happy New Year to one and all. Uh, it's crazy that somehow it's the year 2020 already. Someone um, pointed out to me just the other day that we're as close to the year 2050 as we are the year 1990, which I don't know about you, but that makes me feel kind of old. I guess if you're like 18 in the room, you're like, yeah, 1990 was forever ago. But for, you know, a lot of us, it wasn't. Uh, but this being the first week of a new year, it's New Year's resolutions time, right? So how are those going? You know, we're on day five. I hope you've made it thus far in, in your commitment to be healthier or your commitment to stick by your budget or to read your Bible more consistently or to kick that bad habit. I hope you're still going strong. Well, today... As Angie said, we're kicking off a new sermon series here called My Word for the Year, which is sort of a riff on a New Year's resolution. It's something that each of us who's preaching in this series, just a word that we want to focus on for the year. Something we want to grow in or something that we hope is true of us this year or something that we want to aim our lives at. So as I thought about this and prayed about it for myself, considering where I'm at spiritually, to consider where I'm at in my life, and how I want to grow, I landed on the word childlike. In 2020, I want to be more childlike. And as I was prepping, I realized that today, down in Kids Point and in Wonderville, the kids, they're wearing their PJs today, and they're eating cereal. So what I really wanted to do was come in my flannel pants and an old t-shirt from high school and be munching on some Lucky Charms up here. Well, but I didn't think you'd want to hear the crunch crunch in the mic the whole time. So you get, you know, business casual Kyle. So we're going to look at Matthew 18 this morning as we unpack a little bit of what it means to be childlike and how I hope that my 2020 is marked by childlikeness. It's been really good for me to sit with this concept over the past few days especially. It's, it's shaken me up. It's, it's messed with my mind in all the good ways. And I hope that this morning God uses something from this to stir you as well. So Matthew 18, a little bit of context for where we're at in the story of Jesus. At this point, Jesus has been doing his, his thing for a while. He's well known for his teaching. He's performed a bunch of miracles, and it won't be long before he's crucified. In fact, he's already warned his disciples that when they get to Jerusalem, he is going to be betrayed and killed, but he would rise again. And the disciples make painfully obvious that they don't get it, that they don't understand what he's talking about. And at that point, and at that point we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 18. Starting in verse 1, it says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in heaven? Now, I want us to pause right there for a second. So Jesus, walking around with his disciples, and they ask him this question. He says, essentially, which one of us is the best? Now, in Matthew here, it says, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But if you look at the books of Mark and Luke, where the story is also recorded, it's made clear that the only people that are in consideration for greatest in heaven are these 12 disciples. Because in their minds, think about it, like nobody can, clearly nobody can be above them. Jesus wouldn't have chosen them if they weren't already the best. So Jesus, who's the best of the best? Who's the greatest of your little crew of greatest here? 
I kind of wonder what the discussion leading up to this was like among the disciples before they worked up the courage to ask Jesus. Like, were they comparing stats? Like, yeah, well, Jesus asked me to go get lunch a bunch of times and to find places that he relies on me for that. But, but, well, you know what, though? I'm more talented in this area, and I'm definitely smarter than you. And, but think about how many times Jesus has agreed with me when I've brought up this, these great points. Now think for a second. The disciples have been following Jesus. They've been with Jesus for a while. And they've seen some crazy stuff. And they're asking him who the greatest is. They're asking the man that they've seen give sight to the blind. A man they've seen feed 5,000 people out of five little loaves of bread and two little fish. They're asking the man they've seen stop a raging storm simply by talking to it. A man they've seen walk on water and a man they've seen raise people from the dead. And they're asking this man, hey, which one of us are you most impressed with? They weren't standing in awe of Jesus. They were promoting themselves. Standing in awe of themselves. And Jesus shows himself to be a man of great patience in how he responds to them. Matthew 18, verse 2. Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus, who's the best? And Jesus responds with, if you think you're going to impress your way into greatness in the kingdom of heaven, you're missing the point. You must change. The word change used here in verse 3 is almost always translated turn throughout the Bible. Literally turning your body in a different direction. To change what you're facing. To change the direction you're walking. To aim at a different target. Greatest? Don't look at your stack of accomplishments and how impressive you are and, and how you're better than other people. Turn and look at this little kid. This little kid is your goal. Kyle, you need to stop being so impressed with yourself and become more like this little guy. Yes, that is little child Kyle. Other than having a disproportionately large head, what does that version of Kyle have that I don't? And a tie. What, what about him am I supposed to take on? What have I seemed to grow out of that I need to go back to? That I need to turn back to? There's something about that little boy up there that I need to become more like, that I've, in a sense, lost along the way that I need to get back to. Jesus says it right here in verse 4. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child, 
As other translations put it, whoever humbles themselves like this child. The call to be childlike is a call to humility. If you hang out with a three or four year old for more than about five minutes, you'll quickly realize how needy they are. And not only needy, but they are completely unashamed of their neediness. They ask for a snack. They ask you to read to them. They ask you to play a game with them. They ask you to help them wipe. And then once you remind them, they ask you to help them wash their hands. And then they ask you for a drink of water. And then they ask you to help find their teddy bear or their shoes or whatever toy they lost in the past five minutes somehow. They can't take care of themselves and they know it. In calling us to become childlike, Jesus is calling us to humbly admit that we need him. I'm a 34-year-old needy man. That's not something that grown men like to say very often, is that I'm needy. We like to be independent, self-sufficient. But it's true. I am needy. We all are needy. And recognizing my need, my, my inability to save myself, is at the heart of the gospel message. What God has done for us in Jesus is what we could never have done on our own. I need Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I need Jesus' good in exchange for my sin. I need Jesus' grace and mercy and forgiveness. I need a Savior. I need Him. But the disciples didn't get it. They came to Jesus not confessing their need for his mercy, but they came came touting their greatness. And Jesus was having none of it. Come like this child, or there's no room for you in the kingdom of heaven. In 2020, I want to be more childlike, to humbly, daily, continually remember how much I need Jesus. How needy I am. Now, this is a whole lot easier said than done. If we slow down for a second, we can start to see that this is actually a really daunting and terrifying thing. Jesus here is flipping everything we've taught, every way we function upside down. Because this is not the way we operate. You go on a job interview, talk yourself up. Look at my high sales numbers and stellar performance reviews. Applying for college or scholarships, talk yourself up. Look at my community service and my good grades. You're on a first date, talk yourself up and look good doing it. We're about to get a big dose of this in the coming months. Are you running for office? Talk yourself up. Bigly. And not only that, but the higher the stakes, the more we feel the need to talk ourselves up and hide our weaknesses. If I'm trying to get a full ride to Harvard, I better be ready to impress. No weaknesses on that transcript, not a single typo on that impeccably written essay, every comma in the right place, every margin perfect, word choice gone over time and time again. But if I want to just take some random cooking class at Martin's, 
I'm not even going to check if I spelled my name correctly on the information sheet they ask for. The higher the stakes, the more I feel the need to put my best foot forward. To make myself look good and big and impressive and hide the things about me that aren't that way. So think about coming before the God of the universe. Walking before the God of the universe. Talking about high stakes. There's nothing bigger than that. If there's ever a time for me to have my resume up to date with all the good things I've done, if there's ever a time for me to puff up and and show that I am worthy and I am good and I've done so much, and for me to kind of minimize and hide anything that's not right, that seems like the time. But Jesus says, no. Come humbly. Come like a child. And so we come to the King of Kings. And we say, it's just me. It's just me. I have nothing to offer you. In fact, the only thing I I do have really is just the mess that I've made of my life. I've rebelled against you. I've broken your laws. I know what I deserve. Will you please have mercy? The thought of The thought of this is terrifying because it's completely backwards from how it seems like we should respond and how we respond in everyday life and other things, except for one thing. Look at what Jesus does here in verse 5. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus puts himself alongside the humble. Jesus stands with those who become childlike. And when Jesus stands with us before the throne of God, he puts his arm around us and he says, this one's mine. I paid for this one. I've washed this one. I've paid their way. They're with me. So our confidence to be humble Our confidence to humble ourselves and become like a child comes from the one who stands with the lowly. And it's in this that we begin to see the second part of being childlike that I want to grow in in 2020. I want to grow in the confidence to be childlike. I want to grow in confidence that Jesus is standing with me and for me. Jesus stands up for literal children in their low position and also those who humble themselves and become childlike. We see this in the very next chapter, Matthew 19, verse 13. Jesus demonstrates this isn't just some theoretical idea that he tossed out about welcoming little children. He meant it. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. 
But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed hands on them, he went on from there. Jesus, the most important man to ever walk the planet, took time for the lowly and rebuked those who didn't. Jesus took time for us in our lowliness and stands up for us in heaven just as he stands up for those who are overlooked and undervalued on earth. So what does that mean for me and how I value others? How much time and attention and consideration I give to those who are low by earthly standards or my standards, to those who are overlooked and undervalued today. If one of my main responses, and this is a temptation for me, it's a temptation for all of us. If one of my main responses to someone is, what can they do for me? How can they help me? How, how useful are they? Then I am not in step with Jesus. No matter what skills they lack, no matter how poor they are, no matter what language they speak or what struggles they have, or how old or how young they are, it shouldn't matter. Jesus makes space for the lonely for the lowly, at his own expense. So any mental calculation I do of a person's value based upon anything other than God made them is an offense to God and an overestimation of myself. It's an overestimation of myself because if God had performed a mental calculation of what I have to offer him versus the cost to make me his, I'm hopeless. I am way on the losing end of that calculation. There is no way that what I bring to the table to God is worth the price he paid, is worth the blood of Jesus. God didn't need me. God still doesn't need me. God is infinitely powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He has endless resources. And even if there's something he's like, oh, that'd be helpful, he can just speak it and create it. He doesn't need me. And that can sound really discouraging and disheartening until we stop and think about the fact that the opposite is actually true. God not needing me makes his love for me all the more astounding. God didn't send his son to bear the weight of my sin and absorb my punishment to be nailed to a cross and die because he needed me. He did it because he loves me. He didn't have to save me. He didn't have to die for me. But he wanted to because he loves me. I love 1 John 3, 1. It says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. When God sets his love on us, when we come to Jesus and humble ourselves and put our trust in him, we are more than childlike. We become children of God. 1 John 3, 1. We should be called children of God, and so we are. We come childlike and become children. 
We're not like children to God. We are children of God. And that's why childlike faith isn't some naive belief in the tooth fairy. The kind of childlike faith Jesus is talking about is a wholehearted trust in a loving father. It's relational trust and reliance, not naive belief. And if we view God this way, if we can get our minds around the fact that he is our loving father, it changes things. And that for me is the heart of what childlikeness is in 2020 for me. I want to grow in enjoying and trusting my father's love for me. Several years ago, I heard a speaker talk about how we sometimes view God like a big Santa Claus. But not the holly jolly laughing Santa, the other side of Santa. The one that the song's about. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa, he's coming. He sees you when you're sleeping, and he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. He's checking his list twice. He will find out if you're naughty or nice, and he will withhold good from you if you've been bad. The big Santa Claus God is a God who motivates good behavior through fear and threats. The speaker went on to talk about how God is a God of grace who gives generously, not because we're good, but in spite of us being bad. Because Jesus is good. That's why God gives good to us. And as I sat there listening, I was thinking, I think we all have these distorted views of God in some form or fashion, like a default distorted view of God. And I could see how the Santa Claus God had at times crept into my view of him, but I also thought, you know, that's not really my default distorted view of God. So I thought about if I had to illustrate, if I had to articulate how I see God in a messed up way, what would it be? I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know, it's not, I don't view God as angry or weak and soft or too buddy-buddy or permissive. What I realized is that my default distorted view of God is that I see him as the good president God. A president is powerful. There's no question about that. Tons of responsibility, tons of authority. And a good president cares about the citizens of the country. So generally speaking, the president cares about me. But there's such a significant distance between us. I'm nowhere close to important enough for any president, no matter how good or kind or whatever. I'm not important enough for any president to really take a true interest in me. They have way more important things to attend to, more important people to talk to, and more important decisions to make. But like I said, God is like a good president, so I still get good things from him, but it's not because he does them for me. It's just that he makes really good big decisions that I am the eventual recipient of as they're kind of good for everybody. A trickle down, so to speak. So, you know, I could pray to him, 
But is he really that interested? I mean, how much, how much sway does some random letter from a guy in Winona Lake, Indiana have when it reaches the White House? Does God really take me into account? I mean, probably not, but that's okay. I mean, he's good. He knows what's best. So I'll just keep on keeping on as an average anonymous citizen in the kingdom of God. When I say it out loud, I start to see how messed up that view of God is that I often default to. He's good and he's powerful, but he's not really interested in me. He doesn't have the time for me. I don't know what your sort of default distorted view of God is, but I know that for all of us, I know that for me, if I can move my default picture of God away from a distorted one, away from this good president God, towards a God who is my loving parent, it drastically changes things. It drastically changes me. God doesn't care about me like a politician cares about their constituents. He cares for me like a parent cares for a child. And that is a completely different thing. It's so personal. It's so intimate. It's so deep. And it's motivated by pure love for me. I must say, I've never been so thankful to be a man or so impressed with women as when my wife, Emily, was in labor. For Asher, our our oldest, Emily was in labor for 24 hours, and it wasn't the smoothest labor either. There were a couple complications that made it more uncomfortable than normal, and from what I understand, normal is bad enough. Emily was so exhausted that near the end, she was literally falling asleep in the two minutes between contractions only to be rudely awakened by the pain. And then after Asher was born, it was still hard. No rest for the weary. After running this marathon of pain, her body's still healing from all it was going through. She's trying to figure out breastfeeding, which was really painful at times. And then the sleep deprivation and getting up three or more times a night to feed her newborn son. It was a lot. And yet she continued to give of herself, her body, her sleep, her pain, her emotions, every ounce of energy. She gave everything to care for that little baby boy. All of the sacrifice, all of the pain, none of it was because she felt obligated to. Like, ah, man, I got this kid now. I guess I got to feed him. Emily cared for Asher and gave all of herself to him because she loved him. She cared for him out of love, not obligation. And this love is a funny thing because Asher was four days old. Four days old. And she said, I want to do it again. I thought she was crazy. But this is such an incredible picture of God's love for his children. He's no politician holed up in some big house in some far off city, too busy and too important to care for little old me. God is my loving father who is near and cares deeply about me. About me. 
and he holds me through the night and comforts me when I'm afraid. He gave his body for me on the cross and he continues to walk with me as I grow and mature and he answers my million questions and provides for me and is patient with me. And it's not because he's obliged to. It's because he loves me so much. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote about it this way. He said, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as a father delights in a son, it seems impossible, but so it is. This is one of the hardest truths for me to wrap my brain around. I am a real ingredient in God's happiness. God has delighted in me. He delights in me. As a father, I get it. Like, I delight in my children. But God delights in me. I, I know me. And a lot of the time, I'm not that delightful. But when God looks at me, he smiles. He delights. He really, actually loves me. Not just people, but me. It seems impossible, but so it is. And I'm tempted. I'm tempted to try to figure out why, why would God love me like this? Why would he love me like this? What is it about me that God would love like this? What's special about me? What did I do? And it all comes back to the same answer. Absolutely nothing. There is no good reason God loves me other than the fact he loves me. His love for me started with his love for me. Not in anything from me. Because if, if his love started because of something I did or because of something about me, like what if that changes or what if I stop doing it? It's not a very secure love. I better find out what that thing is because I need to keep doing it. Because if I don't, then I might be in danger of God not loving me anymore. I need to be careful that I don't, I don't change something about me that made God love me because I, 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 I'm afraid that God's love is going to stop if I, if I mess this up. But God's love started for us with his love for us. Not our love for him. Not anything that I've done. I don't remember exactly why it started, but in our, in our house, we have this nightly ritual that as we put our kids in bed every single night, as we tuck them in, we say this. I love you. Jesus loves you. What changes that? And all three of them respond with nothing. And we say, that's right. No matter how many fits you throw, or how many lies you tell, or how many mean things you do to your siblings, I won't love you any less. No matter how many A's you bring home from school, or how generous you are with your siblings, or how many ways you help out around the house without being asked, I can't love you anymore. 
You cannot earn my love and you cannot lose my love. No matter how many times you get out of bed because you need a drink of water or you can't find your 12, one of your 12 stuffed animals or you forgot to tell us something or you're too hot or you're too cold or your pajamas are uncomfortable, God will still love you. And we will too. Nothing changes God's love for his children. No screw-up is so big that God's love for you will decrease. No success is so big that God's love for you can increase. He wholly and fully and perfectly loves you. This thought amazes me. I can't wrap my mind around it, which is exactly what Paul writes about in Ephesians 3. He says that he hopes that the, the, the Ephesians can know the unknowable love of God. And so I'm going on and on about the love of God because I want to try to get my head around this thing that I'm never going to get my head around, but I want to get my head around it more and more, even just a corner of it. I want to understand just a slice of what God's love is like. And the Bible has so much to say about it. Here's just a sampling of what the Bible says God's love is like. God's love is patient and it's kind. God's love, because of it, he pursues us when we walk away from him. It will never leave us. It will never abandon us. God's love is generous. He sent Jesus for us to die for us while we were still sinners. God, because he loves us so much, makes us alive together with Christ. God's love always protects and always perseveres. It's an everlasting love. It will never run out. It will never fail. We can always trust in his love. His, God's love is slow to anger quick to forgive, and keeps no record of wrongs. And nothing, I mean nothing, can separate us from his love. Neither death, nor life, nor, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is the love of our Father. That is his heart towards us. I want to be childlike remembering my need of Jesus and trusting in my Father's love for me, enjoying my Father's love for me, experiencing my Father's love for me, trusting his love for me. And that transforms everything. To grasp just a bit of his perfect, unconditional, unchanging love. It plays out in a thousand different ways. From from me, like wanting to spend time with this God who loves me so much, to talk to him, to pray to him, to, to listen to him, to ask him for things, to, to follow him and trust him, no matter where he asked me to go in 2020, no matter what he asked me to do, whether it's a major life decision or whether it's just a little nudge in everyday life. I want to follow this Savior who died for me and live in the abundance of God's love for me in 2020. When it comes down to in 2020, I want to be childlike. To walk humbly with my heavenly father and be transformed by his unconditional, unchanging love. 